Today is the quarterly day for our fellowship meal, and I hope that you are um, planning on staying afterwards and eating. There's always a lot of food, and it's such a great time to get to know people better, or maybe even to spend time with people that you know well and get to know new things about them. I think there's so much loneliness in our world today, and that ought not to be part of the body of Christ. So I would encourage you today, stay afterwards. You probably think, oh, I'll have to talk with somebody I don't know. You can do it. You can do it. It's good for you. It's good for them. It's good for our hearts and souls. Food is a big deal. We're going to be looking at the topic of some feasts today, and food is a big deal. Uh, It's probably not very often you share a meal with someone you really, really dislike. I'm sure it occasionally happens. There might be a work meal where you're like, oh, great, got to meet with so-and-so from that department or Maybe for you, you know, great uncle Bob at Thanksgiving or something like that is a challenge to be around. But generally, we share meals with people that care for us. And that is what we're going to be looking at in Mark 14 today. Feasting with the Lamb is going to be covering five meal passages. And each is going to be showing the care that God has given in reaching out to his children. And with each meal, we're going to examine the passage um, we're, we're going to look the, at the purpose of it, the limits, who's allowed to participate in this. Um, we, we could have done 11 or 13 or, or multiple meals. So you might be thinking of meal passages that you're very familiar with. You think, hey, we should have hit this one and this one. There's lots that we could hit. But I think the five that we're going to look at today will, will push us and direct us in a good way. There's some overlap on, on some of them. Um, but we're going to see through these five meals the holiness and righteousness of God. We're going to see every person's desperate need. We're going to see the gift of salvation that's found only in Jesus Christ. And then we're going to be pushed some. What's my response to all this? Is this just some good information? Now I have some information. Moving on, I'll go eat some food. Or is there a response that we must have? Truly, we're going to be seeing the good news of the gospel through these feasts. So the first feast we're going to be looking at is the disciples' Passover that Steve had read for us today. And if we could just uh, review a little bit as we go in Mark chapter 14, and I will start reading verse 12. And it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, that's just another term for the feast of Passover, the celebration of Passover, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said, go into the city, and you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. He will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They're prepared for us. And disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he has told them for the Passover meal. Interestingly, you read broadly anytime you're going to preach, and um, I read an evangelical guy that made his big point, or one of his main points in this passage was that Jesus was an amazing organizer, and he had set up all this stuff in this city, and he had organized with this guy here and made sure this happened, and he could really organize the thing because he was God. There's probably something more miraculous going on here because it has in the verse there, they set out and they found it to be just as he said, and Over and over and over in the Gospels, we're pushed with these, who is this Jesus? And we're never allowed to just say, oh, he's what I've always thought. Or, you know, I kind of like to think of him this way. If you read the Gospels, over and over you are pushed, this is Almighty God. 
This is not some mere man. And just when we think, oh, he's kind of like this. No, there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And he's not just some great organizer. This is God himself who does some miracles in these smaller ways. You think, okay. And then other ways, he's raising people from the dead. And he's providing food but not food for a couple of his buddies. Let's feed the 5,000 or the 4,000 and then peripheral people as well. Who is this man? He is no mere man. This Feast of Unleavened Bread is that of Passover. We're more familiar with that term. One of three big yearly Jewish feasts among some of the smaller ones. This would be the first spring feast um, 14th, 15th of, of Nisan is when it would be starting and then it would be going after that. Um, Pentecost would be the next uh, big spring feast 50 days later, and then we'd have the, the um, Feast of Tabernacles as a fall feast would be coming roughly five months after that. And there would be huge crowds at each one of these. So any of the times you read these last week of Jesus' life in the Gospels, you should be thinking normally the city has X amount of people, and now it's, it's ballooned to two and three and four times that. The towns at the periphery would be having more people as well. Crowds, you'd be having people into town. Um, all the roads would be more crowded. Who's got food? Who's covering this? Just think of, of that kind of level. Diaspora, um, Jews have been scattered around the uh, eastern Mediterranean world. Uh, we could look at the scatterings from the time of Isaiah in the early 700s. We could look at uh, the Babylonian captivity in the very early 600s, this is all BC, uh, into the late 500s BC. Um, And then many people came back, but many did not. And so we have Jewish people scattered around that part of the world, and they would be coming back, many of them. Men were required for each of these main feasts By Jesus' day, many of the men that were scattered around in the nations around them might just come back once a year rather than coming to all three of the feasts. But nevertheless, there'd be huge crowds at these. Um, And we have some some explanation a a little bit on the food. It'll go into that that we're going to be looking at. But just if we could kind of have in our minds now, some of you have participated in a Passover Seder before and some of the foods that you would have there. um, I've been part of those multiple times with some relatives that put those on yearly. So um, it kind of gives you a picture and a, and a way of thinking of it that's, that's pretty special and I think a, a neat thing to do. You have the, the bitter herbs that symbolize the bitterness and harshness of slavery that the Israelites were enduring in ancient Egypt. You have that kind of, um, those of you who have had this, um, kind of mushed up fruit and nuts that's kind of supposed to be the mortar of the bricks that, uh, depending on who prepared it, tastes a little bit like mortar of bricks. Um, you have the parsley or celery that's dipped into salt water, symbolizing the tears in slavery. You have the roasted lamb. The lamb who died um, gave his life in payment. Lamb is always eaten. It's never boiled. It's never fried. It is always roasted. Uh, they were required to roast over a fire um, in Moses' Passover. There's typically some, and there might be other foods you partake of as well. Um, typically, there's an egg or a part of an egg that you eat too, kind of symbolizing new life. Kind of the Passover has this slavery, 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 but freedom, 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 and slavery, 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 and freedom, freedom, freedom. Kind of the new life of that freedom in the roasted or boiled egg. 
Um, I have a, a timeline behind me that will pop on and off at different times, but if you can kind of look at the top middle of that timeline, this is what we're talking about there. We have the cross, or around the year 30 AD, we could go a little, a little less or a little more, but that's going to be close enough as for, for a timeline. And then what is the purpose of the disciples' Passover? Well, it would be absolutely remembrance. You see that over and over. We need to remember what God has done. Look at how he has been faithful. And we are partaking of this meal because our God is faithful and we are not going to forget that. There's also the idea of celebration. Almighty God reached down and lovingly said, you're mine and this is what I'm going to do. And generation after generation, in year by year by year by year, God's children had been celebrating God's faithfulness, remembering. And how about the limits? Who can partake of this table? Well, it'd be, it'd be God's chosen people, the Jews. Also be God-fearers, those who had converted to Judaism. Um, they had done this with their families for centuries, biggest yearly celebration. But if you think for the disciples right here, I think something we need to push in our minds a little bit. They have had They've been following Jesus, and as they follow Jesus, they have expectations. Hey, this is, this is what I think he's going to do. This is how I think he's going to make things right. This is how I think he's going to fix things. This is, we've got Romans, we've got others in this area that are trying to control things. We've got, uh, for lack of a better term, really liberal Jews that are kind of in cahoots with the Romans, and, and Jesus, the Messiah is going to take care of this, and he's going to do it in the here and now, and we're going to make things right. And some of us Maybe even all of us are going to be ruling right alongside him. But the the disciples have been hearing these troubling things. Just earlier in Mark, we're told that the scribes and the chief priests are, are looking for ways to capture Jesus to kill him. Now, what did the 12 know of that? I think we might know what one of them knew, but what did the 12 know of that? We don't know. But had gossip gone out and were people hearing things and were they having to go to different places and go do different things in that last week? We really don't know. We know that they had had the high of highs just a few days earlier when we have the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And hey, go get this unbroken donkey and you're just going to climb aboard. And if they say, hey, what are you doing taking my donkey? You just say, hey, the Lord has need of this. And you're going to be walking down into Jerusalem and people are going to be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're going to be throwing palm branches and taking off their their outer cloaks and throwing it down in front of them. And we've made it, we've arrived and here's the king. But then what other teaching has Jesus given? Well, we had a, a woman that walked in and she breaks this valuable jar of perfume, nard, symbolizing something that normally is given or, or poured out at, a, at death for burial, says, you know, maybe a year's wages worth, cracks it open and washes his, his feet with her hair. Wait, what, what is going on here? She's preparing me for death, Jesus says. He also says, you will not always have me with you, he tells his disciples in this last week. And they're saying, triumphal entry and the Passover but we're hearing these other things. So feel that conflict as you think of the disciples partaking of the Passover. And then we come to the, the twist in this. We have the joy of the Passover, and then we have this twist. Verse 17, And when it was evening, and Jesus came with the twelve, they're at the Passover, 
and they were reclining at table and eating, and Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. How, how does that fit with following him through thick and thin for, for three and a half years? How does that fit with the victory that they expected? What's going on with that would be what the disciples would be thinking. They began to be sorrowful in verse 19, and they, they said to one another, they began to say to him, is it I? Which I think is so interesting because we think of Judas and we think, they had to have known all along. That guy, we know he was, he was you know, stealing some money from, from the money bag. He was, he was the guy in charge of the money. We think, oh, they must have known all along. Hey, if anybody's a little shaky here, it's this Judas guy. Nobody has any clue that it's Judas. None. In fact, John gives us some more information, and it looks like Peter leans over because John's kind of leaning into Jesus as they would be on these low couches. It says, who is it? And he says, it's the one that's going to dip this morsel. Judas dips it, and then it says he got up and, and he left. He, go and do what you're going to do, and he left. So Judas left before it got into what we now know as the Lord's table and rebelled against everything that he had been taught and had learned and had said he believed for the previous three and a half years. And the prophecy was fulfilled. Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 both have this idea of someone close to me rebelling against me. And while there was certainly a near fulfillment of that, the far fulfillment would have been Jesus and Judas. We know Isaiah 53 with the despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, and then the abuse that he was going to get. So what a Passover the disciples were experiencing. Which then takes us, if we want to backtrack a little bit, takes us to our second meal, our second feast. It would be that of Moses' Passover from Exodus chapter 12. And you can just listen as I read, or you can join me as well. Just turn to the front of your Bible and then scoop forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 12. This would be on the top uh, left of your timeline that they will have for you. So Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to read the first 13 verses there. In that timeline, we've got about... 1,500 years uh, prior to what the disciples' Passover had uh, enjoyed. And here is the, the giving that actually should be Exodus 12. But Exodus 24 actually has some information on that as well, but that would be a typo by me. Uh, that Exodus 24 is a section where um, at the Passover, he, he throws the blood. And he says, you know, this is the blood of my covenant and throws it, throws it out and splatters it. It's kind of this picture of the sacrifice that the Lamb had, and that the Lamb of God will eventually have. So we're there in Exodus chapter 12, looking at verses 1 through 13. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You're going to tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So every household uses a lamb. And if a household, in verse 4, is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors can go in together according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make the count for the lamb. And it's interesting about this lamb, this isn't just any lamb that they could eat. Typically, if a farmer's going to eat from their own flock or their own herd, they're going to eat the ugly ones. 
Because that's the ones, you're going to sell the ones that look pretty, and you're going to be eating the ugly ones. But he says, unlike that, your lamb shall be the one without blemish. Should be a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So you're going to bring this lamb in. You might live out in the country, or you might live in a town, might live in a city. But you're actually going to have this lamb hanging out at your house for these four days. So parents, you picture your kids. You got a lamb outside for the next four days. That's going to change some things. Now, this is a pretty rural society. This would not be incredibly unusual, but typically you might slaughter a lamb away from a house and you'd bring it in to eat. Now, again, if this is out in the country and they're raising sheep, it's going to look different. But if you're in a town, this, thing's, this lamb is hanging out at your house for four days. And they're hanging out at your neighbor's house for four days. And the neighbor's over here and the neighbor's over here. So you have a, a, a small group of people. Let's say you've got a thousand people living in an area. Each family or a couple of families has a lamb that's making some noise, that you're feeding it something. So get the picture that your kids would be seeing with this. And then it goes on to say, on the 14th day of the month, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. That gives us something else as well. So you've been feeding this lamb for four days. You are seeing a connection with this lamb, at least at some level. And at twilight, so I'm going to say it's less than a half an hour. It might be 10 minutes. But at twilight, over a huge area, you've got a million Jews at this time living in Egypt. It might be more. It might be less. But that's a, that's a pretty, that's, a, that's a, maybe even a low number. Everybody's killing lambs at the same time. This would be a solemn, everybody is seeing this and smelling this and what's going on here and what are your kids asking? It would all be happening at the same time. So they kill the lambs at twilight. We're in verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So you're smearing blood here and you're smearing blood here and you're smearing blood here. And they shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head, its legs, its inner parts. Shall not let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. So this is what you're going to be dressed and looking like when you eat it. You're not, you're not going to be in your pajamas. You're not going to be wearing whatever you want to wear. This is what you're going to be wearing. You're going to have your belt fastened. Your sandals on your feet, not normal house attire at that time. And your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This is not a lingering meal, at least the eating of the lamb. He says this, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. That's an important thing to remember. I and the Lord. The blood shall be assigned to you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we've got the ten plagues, and there's been a plague, and Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, you can go, you can go. No, you can't go. And the second plague, and the third plague, and everything's happening again and again and again, and we get here to the tenth plague. No, you can go. Oh, you can go. No, you can't go. And we have this lamb without blemish. What is the purpose of this Passover, Moses' Passover? To remember God's faithfulness. 
his faithfulness to Abraham. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to take you up from Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm going to move you all the way over here. You've got a 900-mile journey. You're going to go to a place you've never gone before, and I'm going to take you to Canaan. Why? I've got a place for you, and I've got a plan for you, and I'm going to work on your behalf. God is faithful to Abraham. And we could go on to Isaac and enemies and pressures from here and, and failures in each of them. But God's faithfulness. And Jacob, you've got Esau, and at different times Esau's breathing down his neck, and at, at, at different times Jacob makes pretty horrific failures. But God is faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful. We've got some push here of obedience. That God doesn't just say, hey, do whatever you want. I don't care. He says, no, I've got some specific things I want you to do. You might not even fully understand it. You've never seen this before. One of the things we talk about when we talk about faith in the unseen God is Moses at this time, when he gives these rules and expectations, he's never seen any of this. Most of us have at least seen pictures of a Passover. We've read about a Passover. Some of us have partaken in a Passover Seder, but Moses has never seen any of this. Okay, so I I hold the staff. Okay, make sure my shoes are on. Faith in the unseen God. He is faithful. I want to be obedient to him. And we've got in chapter 13 of Exodus, in uh, verses 8 and 9, you shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Man, we, we teach our kids how to fish and how to play basketball and how to work hard and take them to dance class and all these things and how to read well. None of you parents are like, yeah, my kid's 11. We never got to reading, but we've done some other things that I think are pretty important. Like we do the important things. How are we passing on the faith? And, and, a, and a struggle in churches, in every church is, can be, well, someone else will do it. And I love it that you send your kids to Neil Tong's Sunday school class or send them to the youth group and you ought to. That's a, a huge benefit to them. But the central trainer of your kids is you. You stand before God. I stand before God for my children. And I'm so thankful that I get to do that in a congregation like this, that I know that there are godly men and women that are helping point my kids to Christ. Praise the Lord for that. I, my heart breaks at times for um, friends on the mission field, maybe in tiny, tiny churches where there are few or none or very, very few people that are helping to point kids to Christ. Praise the Lord for this congregation right here. But boy, the central one to point them to Christ is you. Hey, what has Christ done? Let me tell you, son. How about some limits? Who may participate in this? Well, it's God's chosen people, Israel, uh, those who are willing to obey, those who are willing to put the blood on the doorposts, obediently eat the meal, Uh, slaves and God-fearers who had been circumcised, they were allowed to partake as well. Um, It's interesting, we could go into this, but if you want to read in chapter 12, it'll say basically, no short-term visitors are allowed to partake in this. So if you're from another country, if if you're not Jewish or you're coming in to this Passover, you were not allowed to partake. It was a hard no. Unless you converted to Judaism. So if someone comes in and they're willing, and how, can, how do we know they're willing to convert? If they're willing to be circumcised, 
So I'm thinking a traveling worker from somewhere else isn't going to swing by for a few days and drop in for a meal of the Passover. You must be circumcised was an expectation in this. You look at 12, 43 through 49 in that. Um, Also in chapter 12, you are allowed to eat no leaven for that week. And it says, if you partake of this meal and you have eaten leaven in your bread this week, you are going to be cut off from Israel. Not, not some small punishment. I think that's one thing we need to emphasize. We rightly and want to emphasize God's mercy and grace, and, and we must do it every moment of every day because none of us can stand aside from the mercy and grace of Almighty God. But right along with his mercy and grace is his love and justice and righteousness, and he has some expectations. And he says, if you eat leaven in this week, you will be cut off from Israel pretty serious limits what God is doing. And he also says that some people are going to die. 12, 29 through 31 in Exodus. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone did not die. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night, and he said, go up, get out of here, both you and your people. Go and serve the Lord. Take your flocks and your herds. Get out of here. Be gone and bless me also. Interesting last phrase. He's probably thinking, are more people going to die? What have I done? There is, I've had my little gods combating Moses and Aaron's God, whether it's snakes on the ground or different things at multiple times in our previous chapters in Exodus, and my kid's dead, and this God of yours is too much for me. And that's what he was recognizing. Can you picture the screaming and the horror? And for over 1,400 years, close to 1,500 years, celebrated yearly, by God's children. I think that gives us a good picture of what the disciples were experiencing. Our third feast, that of the Lord's table. You can turn with me back to Mark uh, 14, and we're going to be kind of in the bottom middle of our timeline that you'll see on the screen. Um, we are there in verse uh, 22. And I will read that. It says, as they were eating, so they're eating the Passover meal. We're again, we're in Mark 14. They're eating the Passover meal. Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to him. And he said, take, this is my body. Which would be a pretty startling thing to be said during a Passover meal. And then verse 23, it says he took a cup. It was probably the third cup. And if you've done a Passover meal, there's four cups And the third one is dealing with redemption. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And they would be a communal cup. They all took a sip of it as it went around. Um, And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he kind of leaves the rhythms of the Passover Seder and... He goes in a direction that none of the disciples would have been prepared for, saying, whoa, 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 what are we doing right here? And what he's establishing is that he is the perfect, righteous, no blemish, no spot, 
forever, one-time Passover lamb. He was sacrificed on the 14th, 15th of Nisan. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And not repeatedly, not a repeated sacrifice as some in broader Christianity push, but once for all. Hebrews 9.28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Offered once. And the four cups representing deliverance promised by God. Again, that slavery, freedom, slavery, freedom, slavery, freedom idea. The four cups are from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And God, Almighty God has these promises in there, four promises. And each one is emphasized in each cup that is drunk. The first one is, I will bring out. I will deliver is the second one. The third one, I will redeem. And the fourth one, I will take you as my people. Jeremiah 31 reminds us in the verse that we're quite familiar with of this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. We've just been reading about that from Exodus. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make, this new one, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And what are the limits on this? Who can partake? Well, who can partake? Those who are following Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Recognizing our sin that we, in a sense, are Judas. Earlier verses in Mark 14, here's what Judas did. In a sense, we are him. But by God's goodness and grace have been brought to repentance. We're trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection as the only basis for our forgiveness. And we're living and repentance. And what purpose are we doing this? You ever thought about that? Why do we drink? You know, if you walked in this room and you've never been in a church in your entire life and you walk in and people at some point are going to be passing around like a, a little cup, a little bit of juice in it. And a, underneath that cup is another cup with a little bit of bread in it. And what, what's going on with that? It's not filling anyone up. What is going on? If you had never seen that before, it would look really, really strange. Why do we do it? We're remembering the Lord's death until he comes. We're reminding each other of the new covenant. So when we partake later, believers, reminding, hey, we're part of this new covenant. We're not part of the old covenant. We're part of the new covenant. Look at what God has done. We're celebrating, thirdly, Jesus' victory over sin and death. And truly, we're worshiping him for giving new life. That's what's going on, that little cup. So that was our third feast, that of the Lord's table that we'll partake in a little bit. Moving on to our fourth feast, Isaiah's feast. And that would be on your sheet, kind of at your, or, uh, on the screen, I guess, on your bottom left, about 700 years before the time of Christ. Uh, Isaiah 25 tells us about this. Just a little bit of background for us. Uh, Isaiah ministered 
from about the mid, maybe 750-ish BC. So we're looking 250 years after the time of King David. Uh, the northern 10 tribes had split off from the southern two tribes. We've got Israel to the north. We've got Judah to the south. Uh, Judah and Benjamin, known as Judah. Um, Judah more generally had leadership and people that were following God. Israel had very little of that, the northern ten tribes. Israel had gotten more and more into apostasy and sin, and you, 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 you read in the Old Testament, it'll be like, and they, they were following in the sins of Molech, or they were, they were, you know, they were following God, but they were also worshiping in the hills, or they were following Asherah, or those kind of things. It was really a... Um, a mixed bag of rebellion against God, if we will. Uh, about the year 722, Assyria has been flexing its muscles and had been growing in power. Assyria, kind of think of uh, modern-day Asia Minor or Turkey, and then go also scoot to your east a little bit from where modern Turkey is today. Um, Sennacherib, other leaders had been going down and foraging in different areas and conquering and conquering and conquering and went down and in 722, 721 BC uh, conquered those northern 10 tribes of Israel. Um, it was a, a terrible time, idolatry. Uh, we, we lost, we are living in the promised land and we no longer have the promised land. And if we were all people living in, in those northern 10 tribes of Israel at that time, it was something like, this half of the room would be removed and sent up to Assyria, and this amount of people would be brought down from Assyria to intermingle with us. And then they would say, okay, everybody mix up and mix up together. I want you to intermarry. If you don't, you'll get in trouble. Um, all their gods and evil worship and all that is going to be mixed in with Israel's and make this mishmash of ungodly, not following God, eventually became what is, was known as the Samaritans in Samaria. So that's kind of a little bit of background. Uh, if you turn there to Isaiah, or you can just listen as I read. Um, I think Isaiah 24, I'm going to start with a couple verses from there to kind of set our thinking on how bad things were and how universal they were. It wasn't like, hey, the poor people are struggling, but the rich people are fine. This is everybody was in a terrible, terrible place. Isaiah 24 uh, one through three or four. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth. So how bad is it going to be? Behold, the Lord will empty the earth. He's going to make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And that's what the Israelites had been experiencing, right? And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken. It says the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes. The highest people of the earth languish. I mean, this is just disaster, disaster, disaster. We scoot down just a little bit to verse 7. Hey, is there any celebration? We've been having these feasts of celebration and celebration and remembrance. Verse 7 says... The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, there's no dancing. The noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. They don't drink wine with singing, their stuff they're drinking is bitter to them. But the purpose, 
What's the purpose of this feast? It's hope. Look with me in verse in chapter 25. So it starts off with some hope in the first verses here. It says in chapter 25, As bad as all that is, here's some hope. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, a fortified city of ruin. The foreigner's palace is, is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. But strong, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of, a ruthless, of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. And then look at this intense hope starting in verse 6. On this mountain, we talk about the mountain of Zion frequently, but on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, and, and if you notice in these three verses, has all, I think, five different times. It's complete in scope. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. We've got a feast here. This is our fourth feast. He's going to make a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. And what is God going to do? He will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all people, kind of this guilt that is over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And, and who is guaranteeing this? For the Lord has spoken. I think that's pretty intense forgiveness. We could look at Genesis chapter 3 and the, covering, the, the guilt that we have both in Adam and our own decisions to sin um, and, the, and the covering Galatians chapter 3 says that Jesus has become a curse for us. So the curse that we deserved, taken by Jesus himself. He makes that statement in Isaiah, he's going to swallow up death. Every single person in this room has sorrow over people that we have lost, that we love. I hope that every person in this room has some thinking of, I am not going to live forever. As Pastor Keith well prayed a few minutes ago, we are all going to die and what is the plan? But we have Almighty God saying, I'm going to swallow up death forever. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to remove that. I'm going to make it gone because of my great love and great power and my plan. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, when is this going to be fulfilled? Um, I would say your average serious observing Jew in 30 AD would have said it's going to happen when the Messiah comes. Um, I, I think there's probably little doubt that was the expectation of the disciples. Hey, Jesus is going to make it right. He's going to fix all of this. We're going to, we're going to have our nation back. And we could probably argue that there were some pockets of near fulfillment of this, though in Israel, the northern ten tribes, not as much. You could probably look under Maccabees, which had been like 185 BC, there, there was some land that was taken back for a time, uh, certainly in the southern uh, tribes of Judah, and, and, and some in the north as well. Not really good near fulfillment. How about the time of Christ? You know, I think the disciples are saying, hey, maybe at this Lord's Supper, maybe this is when things are going to get fixed. Um, you know, Peter and not too many hours after this is going to be lopping off Malchus' ear, right? 
hey, we're going to make this thing happen. We're going to make this kingdom on earth happen. We're going to have abundance and land and rule and this stuff from Isaiah 25. We're going to have a king. Jesus is going to be that king. He's going to be that earthly king. We know that Jesus did not come to be a mere earthly king. But he came for a bigger purpose, an eternal purpose. So I'm going to argue that this, the fulfillment of Isaiah 25, while it touches upon the Messiah, certainly, it's really going even over past that to a future date for the Messiah. And that would be the fifth feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you want to turn to the very end of your Bibles, into Revelation 19, and I'll read a few verses from there, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We could look at a lot in this chapter, we just won't. Um, This chapter kind of has Jesus as the bridegroom in the early part, and then Jesus as a warrior in in the second part, and both of them are truly who he is. Let's look at verses six through nine. John says here, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And what are they crying out? Well, they're worshiping. They're saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us uh, rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint and the angel of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship. And he said, you must do not that. I'm, I'm just the messenger. The Lamb is the one. The bridegroom is the one that should be worshipped. Appropriate response? Worship. So at a future time, we have a wedding coming. We have a wedding feast coming. Many of you were at the Stenneker wedding yesterday afternoon, and you see a bride and a groom and the joy and the happiness and the smiles and the songs, and, and we certainly desired worship of Almighty God bringing two believers together. We'd love that. And if you've been in a wedding as a pastor, you get a pretty close view of everything because you're right there. And every time a You've got the groom usually next to you, and the door's open in the back, and there's the bride. And I always like, take a look at the bride, and I always look at the dude next to me because they always look so happy, you know, which they ought to. But it's like, I looked at Josh, and he was nervous, and he was like, try not to smile too big, and you're so happy for him. Look at what God has allowed. And just a, that's just a tiny picture of the believers in this room are that bride at the back. Only instead of like Mackenzie, you know, she's got makeup on and the fancy dress and all that, we know scripturally the groom, Jesus Christ, he enabled the righteousness there. He says, uh, you know, in nice linen. So not like the prostitute from chapter 17 of Revelation who has all these like gaudy garments going on. But Jesus, the bridegroom, has clothed in his righteousness his bride. And the final consummating of that marriage is there, and it's here, and we're going to eat this meal together, and we're going to worship the Lord together. And who is part in this? Well, it's believers throughout the ages, right? 
And so at this future marriage supper of the Lamb, your believing grandma who passed away 26 years ago will be there. And if you're a child of God today, you will be there. And people that you think of throughout history, Adoniram Judson will be there. And his wife, Anna. And his second wife, Sarah. And his third wife, Emily, I think, will be there worshiping the Lamb. And famous people throughout history are going to be at this. Ooh. And people that we've never heard of. Unnamed. A slave. Someone who did the most menial work. But they're trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior will be there from all ages and, and all time past. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Marriage supper of the Lamb. I have a quote from R.C. Sproul as we at times feel discouraged about our own hearts, our own sin, our own failure. He says this about the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, though at present the church is far from perfect, one day she will be presented to her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, spotless. Even now our Lord is sanctifying the church, and we can be sure that she is growing in holiness even as we cannot perceive it at times. Let us thank God for his work in making us holy, and let us pray today that our local churches will grow in holiness and shine as lights in our dark culture. So as a timeline, that would be in the, the top right, Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's happening in the future, Revelation 19. And who gets to participate? Those who are following Christ. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's why we're excited. We have Pastor Sylvain here today, and he could share a little bit about God's work in West Africa. Praise the Lord for that. That's why a couple, two weeks from today, we have a special giving time for Serbia, for the seminary in Serbia with needs to finish off the building and some other needs that they have. And we get to have a part in that. Not because it's like, oh, it's so fun to mail a check to Serbia, but it's fun to mail a check to Serbia when you're saying, hey, God, I'm giving this money to you. It's your money. Use it for your purposes. And we are getting to have this small part in every tribe and tongue and nation. Serbians coming to know Christ. And monies are going out around the world and even in our own community. We want people to know Christ. And at this future time, we will be celebrating. Wednesday night, Jim Golly shared, you'll prepare a table before me. It says in Psalm 23, and it says, in the presence of my enemies. Talking about the care of the good shepherd. But at this marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be no enemies. They will be all part of the bride following the groom, Jesus Christ. We also have, and I, I, I need to add this in here before we close, it's kind of actually two meals in this chapter. Pretty sobering, kind of disgusting meal at the end of chapter 19. And I think we need to kind of recognize you're either going to be participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb, or you're going to be picked clean. And Revelation 19 talks about that as well. We could go, we could read a bigger section, but a smaller section would be starting with verse 17. John saw, John saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. It says, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, 
the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of the earth, their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the throne. There's two feasts in this last chapter. And which feast are you going to be part of? We've got end time continual rebellion that is quenched or we get to be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I would just ask you this, will you follow Christ? Will you look to the one that says, I will take your sin upon me and I will give you my righteousness? And we can have that not by doing a bunch of good stuff, but by saying, I love you and I want to follow you. I am an imperfect person. In, in the responsive reading we had today, there's one thing I would like to just adjust maybe just a little bit. It had the phrase in there that, Hypocrites and sinners will not get to partake, but the the real term should be unrepentant hypocrites and sinners because at some level, every single person in this room is a hypocrite and at some level, every single person in this room is a sinner, but it's, are you under the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you by his enabling and his goodness seeking to follow him? And that's what we want today. So I'm going to pray in a little bit, but before we do, um, I think even just right now, we can have the deacons can come forward, please, and we can have, I think the musicians can come up here as well, and we're going to partake of feast number three, that of the Lord's table. And as you're thinking through this, and each one of these, we've had this reminder of who's allowed to take this. Who's allowed to take the Passover? Who's allowed to take the Lord's table? Who's going to be allowed to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? There's fence on every one of those. And one of the fences that we see as followers of God that's so important is the table is only for those who are trusting in Christ as their Savior and living in repentance. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this punishment, this serious, serious punishment that's given for those that take unworthily or in an unworthy manner. So I want you to be thinking, people are going to be getting up and standing. You might be tempted to say, well, I'm just going to go forward. I don't want to look weird. If you're not a child of God, you you better stay. You better not partake. We would also encourage, the Bible talks about obedience. And it's not in a legalistic way, but the Bible talks about baptism, about being a really basic part of following Jesus Christ. So we would encourage you to be a baptized believer well, I also want you to think some about church membership. Church membership can become legalist in a weird way, legalistic in a weird way, and we do not want that. But at the same time, the Bible is pretty clear. We need to say, hey, we are part of a group, a group that's willing to confront us, a group that we don't just pop in and say, yeah, I'm going to spend a little time with them, but I'm saying, no, I'm part of this group. I'm under the authority structure of the church. I, I follow the direction that God gives us through his word. So if, if you're not a member now, if you're a member of another church, gospel preaching church, come forward. If you're in process of membership, come forward. It's totally fine. But if not, if you're not a child of God, please stay in your seat. And I would encourage you to think through these texts even now. We're going to encourage you at the start of this song, if you could come to either the middle aisle or these two aisles right here. So everybody's going to kind of come in from the outside, come down these three middles, and then you're going to exit to the outside. That way people won't be crowding things up. And um, I will pray before we partake. So when you get the juice and the bread, just hold on to it. Go back to your seat. I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer. I would encourage you to think through this righteous warrior and this bridegroom. 
Jesus and what he has done and what he's accomplished.